0: The scripture reading today will be from Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father.
1: Christ centered. That's what we as a congregation said that we were when we paused in the midst of our church life last fall, and a whole lot of us gathered together on a Saturday morning to share what was most meaningful to us about this particular community of faith and our involvement in it. Christ centered. What does that mean? Does it have a, something to say about our doctrinal beliefs? That we treasure our belief in Jesus Christ? That it informs what we say we believe and what unifies us one to another in the church? Or does it have a practical meaning? That we follow Christ in in every way, each and every day, or at least make it our aim to, as Jesus brings us along by his grace and empowerment. Christ-centered. That's what Paul's letter to the Philippians is. As we explored chapter 1 we noticed how many times Paul used the word Christ. The gospel of Christ, preaching Christ, imprisonment for Christ, looking forward to the day of Christ, and Paul even having the audacity to say, to live is Christ. Today, in chapter 2, we get to the center of Paul's letter, and what we find there is a song about Christ. It turns out that Philippians is literally Christ-centered. Now, Kate, do we have that video? We do now. <laughs> Great! I remember about a minute ago. Fantastic! <laughs> Holy Spirit, thank you for for that blessing. Uh, so. So there's this video that uh, uh, about the le- Paul's letter to the Philippians that is done by an organization called The Bible Project. You can look it up online. They have uh, like summaries, animated summaries of, of each book of the Bible. And it really takes us deep uh, when we into understanding of God's word, when we can see it kind of just come alive in front of us. And I, I want us to look at the first minute and a half of, of this animation because it'll show... Uh, visibly, how the letter of Philippians is centered in Christ.
2: Paul's letter to the Philippians. The church in Philippi was the first Jesus community Paul started in Eastern Europe, and that story is told in Acts chapter 16. Philippi was a Roman colony in ancient Macedonia. It was full of retired soldiers and it was known for its patriotic nationalism. And so there Paul faced resistance when he was announcing Jesus as the true king of the world. And after Paul moved on from there, those who became followers of Jesus continued to suffer resistance and even persecution. But they remained a vibrant community faithful to the way of Jesus. Paul sent this letter from one of his many imprisonments and for a very practical reason. The Philippians had sent one of their members, Epaphroditus, to take a financial gift to Paul to support him in prison. And Paul sent back this letter with Epaphroditus to say thank you and to do a whole lot more. The design of this letter doesn't develop one single idea from beginning to end, like many of Paul's other letters. Rather, Paul has arranged a series of short, reflective essays or vignettes, and they all revolve around the center of gravity in this letter, which is a poem in chapter 2. It artistically retells the story of the Messiah's incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, and exaltation. And then in each of these vignettes, Paul will take up key words or ideas from that poem to show how living as a Christian means seeing your own story as a lived expression of Jesus's story. So Paul...
1: ...how that's laid out because it shows that, yes, it's, Paul writes this letter not necessarily in a truly linear fashion, but orients it all around a song or a poem a hymn that we read today philippians 2 verses 6 through 11. it's a poem about christ traditionally it's called a hymn in latin it's called the carmen christi which translated literally means christ him or "Hymn to christ now whether it's an early poetic creed of the church like a statement of faith Or one of the earliest widely sung hymns in the early church. By the way, it's worded, it's clear that Paul here is quoting something special. Something that would be known not only to him, but to the Philippian church. It's similar to what might be said if. If, if I said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. How many of you wonder where that's from? You've heard that hymn. If I say that, you're drawn to that. Now, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Those words aren't in scripture. But they tell us a whole lot about the gospel, don't they? Paul himself quite possibly composed this. But it's also possible that he was quoting another source written by someone else. But regardless of its source, the language is clearly elevated and lyrical and philosophically profound. These verses in Philippians chapter 2 have had an outsized influence on the theology. Of the Christian church. The scope of its concern seems to be nothing other than eternity in either direction. New Testament scholar Lynn Kohick has this to say about how much we have to take in when we consider these verses. She writes this As we dive into the deep exegetical waters of chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Remember to surface occasionally and appreciate the overarching vision given here. This vision is Grand Canyon Grand. It is oceans deep and as high as the moon and the stars. It should take our breath away and cause us to wonder Ponder. Imagine. There's no denying its doctrinal impact on the church. Most of what we believe about the incarnation of the Son of God comes from this hymn in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Yet in its context in Paul's letter, it not only is of great doctrinal significance, but it is of great practical significance. Because it serves as a reminder of the mindset that we are to have as we live our daily lives in Christian community. It leads us Into humility, the mindset of Jesus. It serves as a description of the mindset of Jesus that we are to have in our relationship to one another. Paul has just encouraged the Philippians to be one in spirit and of one mind, in humility, valuing each other above themselves. And during this series, we have been talking about the coordination and the teamwork required for a crew of rowers to row as one. That's why we have these oars that are up here framing the cross. Paul is encouraging us to not just look out for our own interests, but to look out for the interests of others. And now he gives us the reason why. Because of who Jesus is. Reading again, verses 5 through 8 of Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, he writes to the church, have the same mindset that was in Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature, or in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant or the form of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Made himself nothing can also mean emptied himself. The Greek word here is kenosis, and it's the word that theologians have used to describe Jesus coming down to earth in the incarnation, the Son of God coming to be human in his incarnation. But kenosis, or self-emptying, is also something that Jesus demonstrated throughout his life and ministry. He was constantly demonstrating his humility by the people who he associated with Not only was he human but he was very human All those people who you say well that's that's someone who's truly human meaning their human frailty is on display Jesus spent a lot of time around those folks And had no problem with that. He served them. And for their salvation was even willing to suffer crucifixion. There was a TV show a while back called Dirty Jobs. Jobs that a lot of human beings would think would be a little bit below their dignity. These jobs often take a special kind of humility. And there was no dirtier job than to suffer death on a cross in the Roman world to cleanse the world from sin. Jesus humbled himself. Now, this act of humbling was exactly the opposite of what you did to succeed in the Mediterranean world of that day, in the Roman Empire. During the time when Paul wrote this letter, deceased Roman emperors and their families were worshipped as gods. They were worshipped as gods in Philippi. We have evidence of that. You see, those in power lived in this life as if they already were the gods they would become upon their death. Rather than let the culture shape them into self-centeredness, which was an everyday occurrence. And not only back then, but now. Paul calls the Philippians and us to model their behavior on the humility and the self-giving of Jesus. Humility is all about self-emptying. Jesus poured out his rightful power and glory in service, in humble service to others. Whether he was washing the dirty, smelly feet of his disciples or whether he was allowing an untouchable person to touch him and him touching them and bringing healing in return and getting the scorn of the successful people who had designed the society so that those untouchables would not be touched if we are to have the same mindset, what does this look like for us? What do we need to empty ourselves of? How might we divest ourselves of what is keeping us from a life of humility, one with another, in the way of Jesus Christ? I think one area where we are solidly Connected with the Roman world is the area of status. Status matters, doesn't it? In the Roman world, status was almost everything. And has much really changed since then? Status denotes position or rank in relation to others in a hierarchy of prestige or honor. And oftentimes, there are real rewards for having higher status. In the class this morning, we talked about the fact that if you were of high status in Roman society, if you were imprisoned, you were treated fairly and with respect. If you had low status, you most definitely were not. They wouldn't even feed you. Status measures how we stack up against others. And we are socialized from the very beginning to compete with others for it. Some of us learned this in our families as we competed with siblings for our our parents' love and attention. We went to school to learn to read and write. What we didn't know was that oftentimes that school would slot us into status and rank us in relation to each other through grades and through intelligence tests. then we had to, you know, kind of blow off the steam of all of that pressure from school, so then we got to exercise and get involved in team sports. Most of the sports that we played had very shallow depth charts. And everyone knows, don't we, the difference between starters and bench warmers. And then there's the people who just didn't make the team. Then we entered, at a certain point, we entered the world of work. Status couldn't have been more important. As we did what we needed to move up rather than be moved out. In countless ways, we live our life like it's a single elimination tournament. It's march madness every day, it's survive and advance or not. It takes incredible self-determination and self-interest in, in the midst of such circumstances to make it. But in light of all of that, scriptures are clear. Jesus sidestepped all of that. Pouring out his need for status even though no one has ever had a greater claim to it. The status that we seek so deeply and intently was simply not important to the one who we serve and who we claim the name of. Setting aside our preoccupation with status is an expression of Christ-centeredness that will transform a life and the lives around that life in the community of faith. Now, at this point in the Christ hymn, we notice a great turnaround that reflects the truth in the kingdom of God that that if you are looking at exaltation, that it comes through a path of humility because that is the way of Jesus We notice that there was a turnaround, a great reversal of power. The one who was beneath all, the one who humbled himself to be a servant of all, the one who did the dirtiest job that a human being would ever set aside their dignity in order to accomplish. This one, the one who was scandalously crucified, the worst death that Roman citizens, Philippians, could ever imagine. This one was exalted above all powers. Reading from verses 8 through 11. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and even under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Upon hearing this, the Philippians' jaws would drop because Paul said something that, well, they might fear saying publicly. You see, you were required to say Caesar is Lord. That was a a loyalty oath. But to say that Jesus Christ is Lord, and not, hey, just like Caesar is Lord, Jesus is another Lord, Paul isn't saying that. Jesus Christ is Lord. Living in the Roman world was about power demonstrations of power. And contrary to appearances, the humble Christ followers, it turns out, are following the one who is the most powerful. And so we have this this unique place when we offer our humble service to others, That we can do that in the confidence knowing that the power that informs that, that prepares us for it, that holds us firm in the midst of the the challenges, but also what you lose when you don't reach after status and try to make yourself be of high status. That the person we entrust our lives to in the midst of that is in fact the one who is powerful over all things. On this World Communion Sunday, I want us to just consider briefly the the difference, what has happened in the worldwide church since Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians. You'd recall that that the, the Philippian church was the first church planted in the continent of Europe. This is about five or six years later. Paul is in prison in Rome. Sharing the good news with them. Sharing about his missionary journeys and travels. And that the gospel is advancing even through his imprisonment. Even through his low status of being in chains, the gospel continues. It's amazing to think of how Christ's glory is reflected in the worldwide church today. I want to introduce you to Gina Zurlow. She is the co-director of the Center for the Study of Global Christianity. This is located in, near uh, uh, Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, she has been an adjunct faculty at uh, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in this capacity. She's continuing uh, a ministry that was begun years ago that is basically Taking on the role within the global church of keeping track of all the Christians in the world. Including, actually, everyone who has a religion in the world. She's a visiting scholar this year in World Christianity at Harvard Divinity School. And one of the photographs here, you see she's with the Pope And she's handing the Pope the the fruit of this particular think tank that she's the co-director of, which is the World Christian Encyclopedia. It is between those two bound, uh, front cover and back cover, in there is a recording of every single Christian that we're aware of on this globe. Even in countries where it's illegal to be a Christian. That's worthy of the audience of the Pope. In her work, she is helping us understand the vastness of the church in the world today. That as we gather around the communion table today, we are doing that with one third of the earth's population. One out of every three people is in the world communion of Jesus Christ 2.6 billion people. And something has happened. For a while, you know, the the European expansion of the church that was begun in Philippi went quite well. To the point that, at a certain point, a couple hundred years ago, people assumed that Christianity was a European religion. But it's not that way right now. Because 68% of Christians are people of color from the global south. 68. That's close to 7 out of every 10. Amen? Amen. Africa has been remarkable. We mentioned, and as we shared nations, we mentioned a couple of African nations. In the year 1900, that was right around the time when the worldwide missionary movement began, 1.7% of the world's Christians lived in Africa. Today, 27 and a half. Twenty-seven and a half of those who were gathered around the table of our Lord Jesus Christ are on the continent of Africa right now. Now, Tal, you probably know what time it is in Africa right now. So maybe they are or they aren't. Have they been already or are they going to? How does that work? They already would have. Praise the Lord. You know, the Lord can be in all times and all places, and, you know, time zones don't, don't matter to Jesus. One of the things that Gina Zerlo is focusing on is number. Another- another aspect of the humility of the church, and that is the presence of women in world Christianity. For many years, the the statistics about the Christian faith often left women out, and yet there are stories that are coming out of places, especially when the church is under persecution, that the church that women are doing amazing things in the church. One of the stats that she has shared and that that I'm just blown away by is you've heard about the house churches in China that have grown. The church has grown even while there's widespread persecution. It is believed that over 90% of the house churches in China are women gathering together in communion. ...with the living Christ. They risk imprisonment for their faith... ...as many do today... ...and that puts them in good company... ...along with the Philippians... ...who also had that same risk. And we are reminded of the true nature of our faith in this world. So as we gather around this communion table on World Communion Sunday... The expansion of the church in most of the nations and the, the corners of the world reflects the elevation of Jesus as Lord of all. It's amazing that the Christian believers in Philippians had to, get this, I mean, take yourself and your imagination to this point. You're reading this line in the hymn, maybe you're singing it, where it says, and every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. And everyone you know isn't a Christian. How is that going to happen? And yet we look at that and we recognize that one-third of the world's population today is bowing at the name of Jesus right now. Praise the Lord. But it's not something for us to take credit for or to consider ourselves of a higher status because we're part of the winning team in the global tournament of religions. It hasn't changed the gritty roots of a humble faith lived in service of our Lord. It simply means that there are more people following that distinct lower path of humble service in relation to others, what we call the way of Jesus Christ. It reminds us that the power that fuels our acts of humble servanthood is greater than any earthly power that we come up against. And it reminds us that life in Christ is not about our power and glory, because thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Imagine a worldwide church that relates to others with the mindset that was in Christ Jesus relating to others with a mindset that transforms the world one act of selfless humility at a time. A way of living that starts each day right where we live. A world where Christ followers live with Christ in mind.